There's a podcast I think our listeners would want to know about. It's called Seen on Radio. The show has received much acclaim for its deep and engaging dives into the history and the very structure of American society. How can we see society more clearly so we can be more effective in changing it? Seen on Radio's two recent documentary series, Seeing White and Men, have explored racism and sexism in eye-opening ways. Check out Seen on Radio. That's S-C-E-N-E on Radio from the Center for Documentary Studies and PRX. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How can a grassroots movement work in a way to bring about legislative action? That's the question for our guest on Future Hindsight today, Mari Urbina. She's the National Political Director of Indivisible, an organization that cultivates a grassroots movement of thousands of local indivisible groups to elect progressive leaders, realize old progressive policies, and rebuild our democracy. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mila. You're welcome. So as political director, you're leading national political strategy, and you have a lot of things that you're working on actively now. But before we delve into that, tell me briefly, how does Indivisible work? We are an organization that is actually really in response to support a movement that came together shortly after the Trump administration came into office by our founders, Leah and Ezra. They wrote this indivisible guide, this Google Doc that went viral shortly after the 2016 election that really, you know, just demystified Congress and gave folks a roadmap to their own power and their own agency and reminded everyone that in order for Trump to move anything, he would have to have a willing Congress as a partner. Leah and Ezra specifically, were reminded of some of the tactics they saw when they were Hill staffers um, that the Tea Party used around local constituent energy that focused on everyone's specific member of Congress and just sort of, you know, bearing witness to history and letting members of Congress know what their local constituents really cared about. And so it was a movement that was meant to transform a lot of the anger, frustration, and fear that folks felt and sort of offer an on-ramp to organizing and advocacy. I checked out your website, and there's a short video that I really like that tells you everything about what you're supposed to do, which are district office visits, coordinated phone calls, do earned media events and organize protests, attend town halls and other public events, and preferably show up in groups, and write joint statewide public letters, letters to the editor mentioning your member of Congress by name, and also write op-eds. What is the most popular way for individuals to get involved? Because some of these, you know, not everybody can write op-eds, let's say. So I would say last cycle, the 2018 cycle, was really the the rise of this movement of people sort of all organizing in their local communities together under an indivisible sort of banner. What was special about indivisible and, and what is special about our movement is that it's everywhere. Literally in every congressional district, there's more than 4,000 groups across the country. And what we started to see and hear from people was that they didn't realize that other people that shared their views lived in their own communities. And so from folks, it was sort of just that finding of community that was the most powerful part of doing any of those tactics that you just described. That, though, has contributed in major ways. If you look at last cycle, you look at, for example, those town halls and those district office tactics suggestions. 
Those happened really early on in 2018 when the Republican Congress with the Republican president started going after Obamacare and health care. And you saw folks just hit the streets, organize these thousand person town halls with their members of Congress, some of them catching them off guard and speaking really clearly that folks needed their health care, that they needed these protections. That sort of just being visible and being together and scaling it over time was incredible. And now when you look back at the last cycle, you think about what were those issues that candidates were talking a lot about? What were the issues that they paid a lot of, you know, commercials for? It was, it was largely healthcare, And so it is really powerful to see how early on your action, whether it's calling your member of Congress, whether it's going in person or to a, a community gathering like a town hall and asking your members clear, specific and pointed questions, resulted in record retirements from Republican members of Congress who sort of saw what was ahead. To us, that's a really powerful arc to say it matters what you do in the defense of these issues and the defense of marginalized communities. And it matters how clearly you speak to these issues to your members of Congress as often and strategically as possible. So do you do sort of training on how to speak? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways that we try to do this. Obviously, it's a, it's a huge movement that really sources their leadership at the local level. And we're really proud of that. We're really proud that, you know, one indivisible group in, in Nevada might be completely different than an indivisible group in, in Tennessee. And so we have to make resources that are accessible, that are scalable, that are smart. And so a lot of those resources are like distributed organizing resources where you can go to our website, you can download an explainer on different legislative procedures or why the certain advocacy or strategy recommendation is the right one for whatever is moving in the Congress at that time. A lot of our focus over the last cycle was how are we demystifying Congress? How are we sort of turning everyone into the insiders that they should be? Because we are the folks that put these folks in office. We now have a, a small but mighty training department that is also thinking kind of longer term about leadership development and training we had convenings across the country that would focus on organizing, on, on power building, on building skills and growing leadership and making sure that our folks were also growing leadership within their own spaces so that there's enough people to carry this work forward as folks tap in and out of the work. You do also engage in protest. In fact, on January 23rd of this year, Indivisible held a National Day of Action. Why did you choose protest for this purpose? It's really important that lawmakers, either when they go home or for their home district periods or when they turn on their televisions or their radios or they read the paper, that they are seeing clearly what constituents are demanding of them, what constituents expect from them. And so it was really critical that the first day of the opening of this new Congress, this historic new Congress, that the members of Congress and the new Democratic majority and leadership was really clear about, you know, not only who helped deliver some of these wins, these electoral gains in the Congress, but also that we weren't going away. We just helped organize and support an incredible movement and shift in power. We're still here and, and we're going to continue to organize and build. I have a question about when you decided or when you saw that your strategy is working with more than 4,000 groups on the ground and essentially mm -hmm. outnumbering the Tea Party. At what point did you realize, okay, this is a pivotal moment for you and you know this is definitely the way forward? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, healthcare has to be a, a huge initial flashpoint just to see the numbers and the volume of people that in early 2017 
took to the streets, took to town halls. I'm not sure if you recall, but early in the cycle after President Trump was elected, you heard some whispers from the Senate Democratic Party and the leadership that, you know, gosh, maybe we need to work with him. Maybe these are the different things we might need to do. And sort of like ceding power even before folks started to come into that new Congress. And so it was really important that Activists and people in their local communities and constituents were speaking clearly that they expected an opposition party that was going to be really strong and active against this administration, that they weren't going to just cede this space because they sort of just had already done the math. And these initial congressional work periods or recess periods is, is what we sort of became known for early on, which is how do we support you so that when your members are back home, that you are making crystal clear to them with volume and with clarity what you're expecting. And so healthcare was really the first embodiment of that. And you saw it continue throughout the cycle. And so I, I would say that was the huge, 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 huge flashpoint that we were able to really stop what they were trying to do with with Obamacare and really now make it an issue that's a vulnerable issue for Republicans when they talk about health care. Yeah, they're definitely vulnerable. And as you mentioned, there were record retirements. Actually, can you give us a concrete example of something where your pressure made the member of Congress decide, you know what, I'm going to not try this again? There was um, specifically a group that would get together in Southern California in ISA's district. They were tenacious. They would get together every single day of the week, and their crowds would just grow and grow and grow and grow. Um, and it was really, really powerful to see how they were pushing him so much on the issues. Eventually, it was like, this is not even worth it. The other point I'd make is that specifically in California, after folks saw some of these town halls and congressional districts, people were really excited about what that would mean for the electoral side of the work. California, unfortunately, had been a place where folks would go and fundraise and, and then leave. So it was really wonderful to see the ways that organizing started to stay within California and really talk about how flipping the Congress would work through California and um, seeing the activity there, even though they did have a jungle primary was exciting because it meant that grassroots people, everyday people could get really involved in what would be a critical congressional election. So it, it, it was really fun to see like the early side to the very end. It's just been amazing to watch some of those seats flip, including California 49 was the ESA one. So since we're talking about jungle primaries, let's shift to the 2020 election, which is where you're focusing right now. And there is a new We Are Indivisible 2020 pledge. It's in three parts for both voters and candidates. Can you tell us more about the parts? Yeah, absolutely. As we started to roll out our primary engagement work, which is to say, like, how do we support this movement of people who want to get involved in this primary, but maybe have some sort of discomfort or, or legitimate concerns about how to talk about these things without creating division? One of my mandates is, how do I support our movement to be engaged and invested in the primary and unafraid in this primary, knowing that whatever we do in the primary, we will ultimately be helping, one, the Democratic nominee emerge strong and vetted, and two, that early engagement will lead us to do the work that we need to do to win in the general and to be unified in the general. And so in March, when we were a year out from Super Tuesday, we rolled out sort of the first version of this. It's called primaries are dot, dot, dot. And we were sort of trying to generate some buzz around primaries being healthy and primaries being a good way to talk about our issues and primaries being a good way to win. 
the pledge was a, was a continuation of that theme and a response to the movement. We wanted to set a tone early in the cycle to say that no matter what, next summer, after the Democratic nominee wins, that we will all support them no matter who they are because the stakes are too high and that the mandate is clear. So we wanted it to be both for the candidates, the presidential candidates who are running for the Democratic nomination, and also for individuals in the grassroots community, because we understand that this is going to take all of us. Every major top-tier candidate has signed on except for Vice President Biden, and we have 14 candidates who have signed on. That's more than half of the declared candidates. Pardon, we have 15. We have more than 27,000 individuals who've signed on to the grassroots version of the pledge. And what it says is, one, Folks are pledging to make the primary constructive, that they're going to respect the other candidates, but that the primary election is about inspiring voters with vision for the future. That number two, we're going to rally behind the winner that will support the ultimate Democratic nominee, no matter who it is. And number three, that we're all going to do the work to beat Donald Trump. My question now is, what does your success signify about Indivisible and your pragmatism on how to win elections and making change? Mm. Oh, wow. That's a great, <laughs> that's a great question. I think one of my biggest learnings that I try to take away and, and maintain as, as I approach the work is always to feel rooted in um, the importance of having folks locally in their communities working on these issues. It can't be sort of just a top-down operation or that can't be sort of a few operatives or campaigners or organizers from D.C. devising things, right? When we speak with one voice in these in these pinpoint moments, it is powerful, and this is what we can do. We can stop from reversing the protections we have in healthcare, or we can help support the protections of, of dreamers and those affected by the Muslim ban and other marginalized people. We can push on these issues to to really build a better democracy, but then also understanding that that's always always in relationship with what folks are organizing, how we're supporting their leadership locally. And that's why it was really important for us. When we built out our, our congressional endorsements program last cycle, we wanted to make sure that the endorsements program had the grassroots voice along the process. And so for us as a national organization to even consider endorsing someone, we have to first receive a local nomination from a local indivisible group who's already endorsed a candidate for, for the candidate to even get on our radar. So that's a small example, but I think an important one. And, and I think that that's how we continue to grow the movement and, and ensure that it stays powerful and, and that it continues to center people who are most marginalized so that we can build a more inclusive democracy. Yeah, that's very eloquently put, and it really speaks directly to why the grassroots approach is so successful. When you're thinking about the 2020 presidential election, who would you say is sort of the epitome of a grassroots candidate? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that might be I a tricky love question. All your questions. Yeah. So <laughs> if. If I were on any of the staff teams for these presidential candidates right now, I'd be encouraging them to make time for the grassroots, to prioritize the grassroots, and to be in, in space and community with them. One, because it's, as we just talked about, when you are talking to everyday people who are organizing in their communities, they're going to help you be a better candidate because they're going to help inform some of these policy issues and, and give texture to them and humanize them so that you can speak more authentically to the pain points that people are feeling in the country. And then two, because they're organizing, right? 
I think what's so powerful about working in a grassroots movement is that when you're truly in community with grassroots local leaders, you hear from them early on who is talented, which candidate is emerging, which message is really resonating at the doors. And then thirdly, it makes our candidates better. If you are in spaces in which everyday people can ask you questions, whether they're town halls or they're other spaces that are not just wealthy donor events, you're going to become much better at making a case for your vision, making a case for bringing voters along to join you in your vision. So I always, you know, I lift up uh, Senator Warren because I think she has, in, in a lot of what she's rolled out, she has prioritized being really accessible, being in public spaces. She has a fundraising strategy that's risky, but different and, and sort of prioritizes people over donors. So you're super passionate, clearly. What makes you passionate? (laughs) How did you get into this? Well, I always joke that I've always been a nerd. Uh, I've been in D.C. for 11 years. I've been working on federal policy for much of it and some campaign work. I've been organizing with Indivisibles the last two years. I always talk about my my work and my training as sort of inside-outside. I started in the Senate working for then-Majority Leader Reid. And so a lot of my training has been through the prism of sort of one of the most powerful Democrats at the time, one of the most strategic vote counters of our time, and also someone who I admired for the ways in which he defended marginalized people within the Democratic caucus, even when it wasn't easy. And 2014 happened. And that was the time that you saw the initial sort of rise of of unaccompanied minor children coming to the border from Central American countries who were fleeing violence and, and, and prosecution and, you know, all kinds of really, really terrible conditions in their home countries. And folks had had sort of started to challenge President Obama's record on immigration and on deportations. And that was the spring when he was called the deporter in chief. And so that was a really, I would say, critical time for my own learning around how do you defend these policies? What kind of power have we built as a progressive community, as a democratic community, as people who care about each other and democracy if we're sort of buying into this frame that we have to be tough on on immigrants or we have to keep this frame that is really hurtful and leaves a lot of people in the margins. And that 2014 midterm election, as many folks remember, was a really demoralized, oppressed electorate. You didn't see folks come out. You didn't see folks motivated. The lesson there for me is there's going to be a lot of tough decisions that have to be made folks who have the most power need to understand the pain and need to understand the community of people who are standing in defense of of those who are most hurt. Wow. Well, that that's truly an experience that would inform us down to the core and really understand what our values are and where do we stand on this issue of demonizing and then maltreating unaccompanied minors who are escaping their countries for good Mm -hmm. reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sort of that pinpoint moment in my career about what shapes and informs how I organize now. Back to my nerd question. I I didn't know it was called organizing when I was younger, but I have been organizing since I was in grade school. I was really fortunate to be involved in in youth development programs. And um, my parents were hardworking people from Nicaragua and, and grew up in rural Nevada They work factory jobs, watching how hard my parents worked and watching how hard my brother works um, to provide for his children is what always shapes the work for me and and keeps me in the movement and making sure that 
yes, we are immigrants and yes, we are so grateful to be here and, and to be part of sort of the American experiment and story, but we also have a right to dignity and justice um, and community. I totally agree. We really do. And I think sometimes, or often nowadays, rather, it gets lost. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Absolutely. People organizing, especially when, when you hang out in D.C., you kind of sometimes hear folks who get really discouraged. I say, you know, forget about it. Get, you know, get, go out, go knock some doors, go make some phone calls, go donate to some inspiring candidates, go donate to some organizations that have been in the trenches for a long time. The work is happening. The work is motivating people taking local action in the way that they can, right? Everyone does their part, but all of us doing something about it is what makes me hopeful. And what I've seen, not just the last couple of years, because the last couple of years have been building on top of enormous movements that are often led by black and brown people and youth and women, but like this sort of like growing of our of our communities who are fighting for justice, this, this growing of allyship, this is a real force. We have to believe in ourselves. We have to believe that we have power to shape the future. We have power to make the politically impossible possible because we've done it. And so that's what gives me hope. Here, here. Thank you very <laughs> much. I really uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Un placer. Thank you so much. Thank you. I feel like this interview is the perfect follow-up after our conversation with Brad Fitch of the Congressional Management Foundation. Indivisible has taken all of its best advice and best practices for citizen advocacy and put it on steroids. They are the best example of giving citizens a roadmap to their own agency. We, the constituents, truly have real power to affect change. And I like that they only interact with their own members of Congress and not anyone else. If you're interested in getting involved and following the Indivisible playbook in your own district, go to indivisible.org. There are many opportunities to take action. Finally, I'm very excited about the unifying Indivisible 2020 pledge. How can civil discourse help us be the best version of our society? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guests are Alan Yarbrough and Bill Steverson. Alan is the communications coordinator of the Office of Government Relations of the Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. He's also the co-author of the Civil Discourse Five-Week Curriculum, a sort of masterclass on how to communicate as a society, even when disagreeing. Bill is a parishioner in the Episcopal Church in Signal Mountain, Tennessee, where he organized and led the course on civil discourse. Civil discourse really is a particular tool for a particular type of engagement and interaction with one another. There are other possibilities, there are other ways of expression, of freedom of speech, voicing our opinions and perspectives that don't necessarily have to be a part of the practice of civil discourse. Civil rights leaders didn't always agree with one another, but there was something more fundamental that they did agree with. There were values that they did share and do share now to bring all of their gifts together. They're still using civil discourse to find a better way forward. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.